morning a second time with the mic on. Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. It's good to see those of you who are here in the room with us. There will be rewards for you in heaven for making it out today on a snowy November morning. But I also want to welcome those of you who are in your pajamas, drinking hot chocolate. Yes, we bless you in that. Save some hot chocolate for me, Judith, Lily, Chloe. We want to welcome everyone who's watching online, whether you're doing that right now live or you'll be doing it later in the day or the week. This is our third week in the book of Ruth, and the plot has thickened considerably since the beginning. For one thing, we have called this a redemption story, and we're seeing that at a deeper and deeper level. What does it mean to be redeemed? It's a word we don't hear a lot of in our culture. It sounds like a religious word, but it's also a really important word in the Bible. And we've got to wrestle with it if we're going to understand our faith and grow in it and then practice the redemptive love of God in our lives. So the dictionary gives us two definitions of this word redemption. The first is to save or be saved. And last week we saw how Ruth and Naomi were saved from starvation. Naomi came back from Moab with nothing. Ruth chose to follow her. Most of all, they needed food. And they got the food they needed last week in chapter 2. And yet, that's not the end of the story. It continues. And so we wonder if maybe food wasn't actually what they needed most of all. When they arrived back in Bethlehem, Naomi told everyone that she was empty, that she was bitter and empty. We can't relate, at least most of us can't, in the city of Guelph to having empty stomachs, to being empty in that sense. But we do know what it's like to have plenty to eat and still to feel this gnawing emptiness, a spiritual emptiness in our lives. What will it take to fill Naomi up is the question that hangs over this whole book. What will it take to fill Ruth up? What will it take to fill us up? We're going to find out a little bit more about what the Bible says in answer to that question today. Let's pray before we open Scripture. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come among us today, and we pray that you would encourage us. There's a lot that we are facing in our lives. We've all come here from different circumstances, different places. Some of us from a really happy place, full of contentment. Others of us from despair and disarray in our lives. Lots of challenges. We ask now that through your word, Lord, that you would speak life into us. We believe that in your word there are words of eternal life, and we pray that you would reveal your will to us and send us on the way that you have charted for us, the way that leads to your goodness, to the homecoming we all need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Ruth chapter 3, or if you've got it on a screen, that's just as good. 
and I'll be referring back to specific verses, so it's good if you want to keep it open, you'll be able to follow along more easily that way. So we're reading from the beginning of Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So the process of winnowing barley meant to separate the stuff that made bread, that made food, from the chaff, from the useless part of uh, the barley and the grain. And the threshing floor was where they did that. They would beat the stalks of grain and they would separate the good stuff from the stuff that could be thrown out. So Naomi continues, wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and whoa, there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. As we talked about a bit last week, the guardian redeemer was a role played by a powerful figure within a family whereby he had an obligation to redeem those in his family who had fallen on hard times and, and who had lost property so you could redeem the property by buying it back or who had lost their own freedom due to poverty and the guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer would then buy them back out of freedom. Boaz replies, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, 
Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite movies is When Harry Met Sally. Rolling Stone, I found out this week, calls it the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Greatest film in that category, romantic comedies. And it asks one basic question. Can men and women ever simply be friends? The film introduces us to Harry, who's played by Billy Crystal, this perennial pessimist, and to Sally, played by Meg Ryan, who is a more upbeat, energetic person. And we follow their friendship over 12 years. They first meet when Harry gets a ride with Sally from the University of Chicago to New York City, but they disagree a lot on the way, and especially when Harry explains to Sally his philosophy of relationships. He says it's impossible to be friends with someone of the opposite gender without sex getting in the way. Now, Harry may be cynical, but he's actually pretty biblical in his realism about how sex complicates relations between men and women. Ironically, when Harry and Sally do become friends, they end up having sex and it ruins their friendship. Harry's problem is that he had separated the two kinds of love that Scripture says should always go together. First, the physical intimacy of sexual love, and second, a committed long-term loving kindness, a covenant love. Now, we've talked about the second kind of love a lot recently, and Allison did also, leading into the call to worship this morning. It's a love that shows up repeatedly in Ruth with this Hebrew word chesed, and it combines ideas of faithfulness, loyalty, and covenant love. It's steadfast love. It's God's kind of love. It's love that pursues the lost against all the odds. It's love that overcomes darkness, despair, and even death. It's love that does not falter or fail. It's unlike the kind of love we often see in our world, but it's who God truly is and who he created us to be as well. It's at the core of what it means to be human as we reflect God's sacrificial love. And we've seen it in this story in Ruth show up in the love of a daughter-in-law for her mother-in-law. Ruth chooses Naomi in this dramatic moment of covenant promise in the first chapter of Ruth. And last week, we saw this love show up in how Boaz, a nobleman, a rich man, treats a woman who would have been viewed as the lowest of the low in that society. He shows kindness to a stranger, a foreigner. And this week, we arrive at a different kind of love. So the movie, When Harry Met Sally, tackles our modern and postmodern confusion about sex For us as Christians, it can also point us all the way back to the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve trade the harmony of God's order for the chaos that comes from a kind of knowledge that turns away from God and that chooses independence over dependence on God. And God said about Adam and Eve that it was not good for either one of them to be alone. And so he designed them, male and female, for togetherness. But when sin comes into the world, men and women fall apart. And the Old Testament paints a vivid 
and sometimes violent picture of that conflict. The Bible is not a romantic comedy, that's for sure. It deals directly with how messed up we are, but it also offers us a message that points to a better way, that points along a trail of God's covenant love, which leads all the way to Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins, the reality that we can't love like the kind of love he has at his core, and offers us grace and peace. The Holy Spirit guides us back into the kind of harmony that we saw in the original intention God had when he created the world for us to enjoy. And so this is good news for men and women beyond our brokenness. But the story of Ruth, for its part, begins with chaos and conflict. Naomi is devastated by the death of her husband and then the death of her two sons. And it's no accident that her suffering comes when the men in her life are eliminated because in that ancient culture, it was extremely dangerous to be a woman without male protection. But there's also a symbolic side to the disappearance of men from this story at its outset. Something is spiritually incomplete. And so we start to get a sense that God's plan to renew life, not least through the gift of children, demands both male and female. And the arrival of Boaz in Ruth chapter 2 then becomes a sign that God is working behind the scenes here. There aren't actually a lot of references to God in the book of Ruth. But there's signs throughout that God is guiding this story back to wholeness, that God is taking the emptiness with which it begins, and that there's a movement towards fullness. And we see that in the way that Boaz reflects God's character with his kindness and generosity to Ruth. Things are getting better. But it's not about some emerging romance between Ruth and Boaz. This story is really about Naomi and a larger family, a family that transcends what human families are normally about, blood and genetics, but a family that goes beyond the expectations of what would hold us together, self-interest, national identity. It's about how the love of God turns this one person's life around, Naomi's life, and saves her from bitterness and emptiness and then leads to the hope of a much broader horizon, hope for all the nations. And so in Ruth 3, we plunge into a kind of love that gets a lot of attention in our world. Sex is flashy. It's like fireworks, and it shows up everywhere in our culture. I was listening to an old favorite song of mine this week by the band Switchfoot at a California Christian surfer band, and they have a song called Easier Than Love, and it starts off, sex is currency, she sells lies, she sells cars, she sells magazines. And so sex does sell, and we see it all the time in advertising. We hear a lot about it in the world, but maybe it's a little different in the church. When Judith and I went for premarital counseling a few years ago now, we were surprised to find among the materials, the study materials, a detailed and fairly explicit survey of our attitudes and expectations about sex. It was a Baptist church, of course. That was a joke. <laughs> Where's Glenn Fox when you need him? No, you did very well. Thank you for that support. The pastor, who was a great premarital counselor, explained to us that Christian couples sometimes run into trouble when they get married without having ever discussed their expectations for sex. 
Now, the opposite is just, of tr- just as true. Sometimes couples can be too open to sex prematurely. So what's the answer to this dilemma? Well, it's not going to be a solution for us to lay down the law about sex, as the church has often done in its history. Nor will it help to wrap sex and our confusion about sexuality in a blanket of silence. As Christians, and maybe particularly if you're like me, as Christians who come from a conservative background, we would sometimes rather avoid sex entirely, or maybe even we're tempted to dwell on its dangers and drawbacks. But the truth is that we should be talking about sex and extolling its goodness. We should do that for the sake of God who created us male and female. Let's start singing sex's praises. It is good, and the gospel of Jesus Christ includes sex. And so does the book of Ruth. Early in this chapter, though you may not have picked up on it as we read it, sexual innuendo. It starts in verse 4. When Naomi, who has come back to life since the end of chapter 1, Naomi tells Ruth, when Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. That phrase, when he lies down, often refers to sex in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew verb behind the, the word uncover there has erotic overtones. And feet also has a double sexual meaning, especially when combined with this word uncovered. So clearly the author of this story is okay with talking about sex. There's an intimacy that's undeniable in what is about to take place here. As Ruth sets out to do everything that Naomi advises, she's taking a huge risk. It's a reminder of how desperate she and Naomi still are. This is not a first date scenario. Ruth had no business being there. If you found women overnight at the threshing floor, they were assumed to be prostitutes. The men were there to guard the grain. The women would have gone back home to safety inside the walls of Bethlehem. And that's why Boaz is so shocked here. Remember, it's completely dark. And in verse 9, when Boaz asks who is there, Ruth replies, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That's interesting because Naomi had said Boaz would tell Ruth what to do, but in fact, it's the opposite. Ruth is telling Boaz what to do. But that line about spreading the corner of his garment over her has a double meaning as well. On the one hand... It's an indirect proposal of marriage that Ruth is making. But there's also a strong sexual suggestion there. And three things could have happened. And I I, I think there's this tension, this pause between verses 9 and 10 that is one of the points in this story where things hang in the balance. How is it going to turn out? Well, the first thing that could have happened is Boaz could have taken Ruth's words and this intimate action on her part as an invitation to sex. Secondly, he could have dismissed her. He could have rejected her advances. He was a virtuous Israelite. He could have shamed her and sent her away. Third, he could have recognized 
the intention behind Ruth's actions and agreed to her proposal. And really, it's incredible, it's mind-boggling that he chose the third option, that he was able to get beyond how wrong it all was, his instinct to judge her, his instinct to play it safe as well. Here she was, a woman proposing to a man, that was wrong. A younger person proposing to an older person, that was very wrong. A field worker, the lowest of the low, proposing to the owner, a prominent, wealthy man. That was terribly wrong. And then a foreigner proposing to an Israelite. That was forbidden by the law. And so there's this, all this tension between verses 9 and 10. And it's relieved not through any predictable and gratuitous sex scene, like in so many bad movies and TV shows out there, but... Through God's purposes, Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal. And while Ruth is acting with great courage here, we know that Boaz is in the position of power. She offers himself, she offers herself to him, and he could have taken her, simply used her for his own pleasure and nothing more. But the trajectory of all that sexual innuendo that's behind the English words, that's in the Hebrew there, does not lead to a narrow outcome like that. Instead, it leads to covenant love. It leads to marriage. It leads to this chesed love, this loyal love. And so Boaz protects Ruth's reputation as she leaves the threshing floor. He ensures that she goes out under cover of darkness. He gives her grain so that if anyone crosses her path, she could say, I just came to get food. In the end, we can't really say what happened between Ruth and Boaz. It's intimate, it's sensual, but it's also modest, veiled in darkness. One thing we can say for sure is that we've gotten to know Ruth and Boaz over the course of reading this story. We've seen both of them show love in extraordinary ways. Ruth by following her mother-in-law to a foreign country, Boaz by providing generously for a foreign woman. They've both been faithful to God, reflecting his love. But we know it could have gone differently. The book of Ruth is like a shaft of light that breaks through a nasty, dark, brutal time in the history of Israel, the era of the judges. You can go back to the book preceding the book of Ruth and read all about it. Everyone did as they pleased is the refrain in that book. We've come so far in thousands of years since then, right? We have the best education in the world. We have the rule of law and we have enlightened government. And yet, we keep reading. Every day, I think I see these headlines. We keep hearing how powerful men choose wrongly and take advantage of women, doing harm to them. It's only three years ago, this past month, that the Me Too movement began after we heard about Harvey Weinstein's incredibly awful record, years and years of sexual abuse. And it's in the church as well. It's been two years, again, since last month, that Bill Hybels fell from glory, if you want to call it that, at Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area. And more recently, Ravi Zacharias has been accused of similar sexual abuse. Then you've got Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and 
the story of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. And now it turns out, if you've been following this news, that the Boy Scouts of America are facing 90,000 lawsuits, cases of sexual abuse. Lord, have mercy is the only response ultimately we can offer to that. We can lament, we must lament, and then return to the discipline of repentance. Well, that's not all, maybe. We also have to intentionally open ourselves up to this chesed love of God and tell ourselves the story of the gospel, of the redemption of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, of the hope that we see in this story and that points the way to Christ. And we can recognize as we do that, that this chesed love, this covenant love of God is not naive. It's not weak. It is love that takes serious account of our depravity. And then we can put that into practice with our leadership structures in the church by not concentrating power in one person, in the pastor, in one leader. Session recently approved a revamped policy uh, called Leading with Care that sets in place guidelines and restrictions, requirements that protect those who are vulnerable in our congregation from abuse. And I hope that you pray often that the Lord will watch over us, that his wings of protection will be over courtright. We need that. We cannot assume that we're different from that, that we're better. In the end, only Jesus can fill our emptiness. Only Jesus can deal with the self-centered instincts in our hearts and the ways that we follow our self-centeredness to try to fill ourselves up with all kinds of things that never do the trick. In Philippians chapter 2, we read, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. There it is again. The emptiness. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be full. He went to the cross to pay the price of our redemption. He died so that we might live. At the end of our study in the book of Ephesians, we heard a call to love within our families, in our workplaces, and within our marriages, that we need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we see all of those relationships played out in the book of Ruth again. We see family, we see workplaces, we see marriage here in the passage we've looked at today. But it's only when the Holy Spirit fills us up that we can faithfully reflect God's loyal love, his steadfast chesed love. And the best hope for nurturing this kind of love lies within vital and healthy Christian communities where people care for one another and forgive one another, 
where we are practicing hospitality, where we are letting people in who we might naturally in this world where there are so many barriers, where there's so much separation and division whom we might naturally exclude, where we can commit to one another and to developing practices, to disciplines and habits that nurture humility and grace, forgiveness, honesty, speaking the truth in love. Only the Holy Spirit makes the church possible. And look at it. We need that dependence on God. Education can't do it. Government can't do it. At the center of our hope is Christ and his redemption. When we are lost, he rushes to our side. When we fail and when the church fails, he promises to forgive us and restore us. So we are not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart in our lives. On the inside, God is renewing us, always. And not a day goes by without his grace unfolding, without his redemptive purposes moving on. And that is good news for all of us, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. At the end of this story, we see that Naomi tells Ruth to wait. She says, this man will do what he will do. And I think we can take that advice as well. I'm going to read verse 18. Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I want us to take a moment now to pray. And I want us to pray. And as we pray, I want us to find ourselves in that tension between verse 9 and verse 10. That moment of decision when there's an opportunity to get what we want, when we have the power, and then to ask the Holy Spirit to change our minds, to change our hearts in a spirit of waiting on the Spirit, in a willingness to give up our privileges, our rights. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you that you are not a God of violence. You are a God of truth, but it's not coercive truth. You are not a God who forces us, though you are mighty and powerful. You are a God of such tenderness that you sent your son Jesus to empty himself of his glory. I don't know how we wrap our heads around that. And to die for us. And Holy Spirit... You are forever pointing us to the cross. And the cross is at the very core of Christian hope. Would you give us your heart, God? Holy Spirit, would you shape us, change us, so that in that moment, when we choose, would we choose out of love that comes from you? Would we choose out of faithfulness that comes from you? Would, would, would we choose to be fruitful? Would we choose what is long-term, what is not short-term? Would we choose what is sacrificial rather than what is selfish? Holy Spirit, would you shape us and change us individually but also together, renew our commitment to one another in the church? 
Lord, have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.